Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, today, we're talking about the Americans with Disabilities Act and everything a growing business needs to know. So I think this is one of those areas where uh, I, I think a lot of us uh, as employers think, well, ADA, I have to have an ADA accessible, uh, 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 say, bathroom, right? We're going to have uh, the right handrails by the commode. I've got to have an ADA accessible storefront, maybe the wheelchair accessible uh, 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 to, to let customers in. But there's a whole lot more when it comes to ADA as just more than a, as a requirement of a business so that we don't discriminate against customers uh, or potential customers with disabilities, but employees. So as an employer, you have legal requirements. If you have or will have more than 15 employees, there's a whole nother uh, uh, level of compliance that is required for employers. Uh, uh, and some of these things are, are just not that obvious. Uh, uh, so I have a really uh, uh, qualified guest joining me today. So if you are a regular watcher, listener of the show, certainly, you know, Brian Schinker from uh, uh, Jackson Lewis. Uh, Brian's practice focuses on representing employers uh, in a wide range of workplace matters, uh, as well as, as preventative advice uh, in counseling. Uh, he has extensive experience defending class and collective action lawsuits under federal and state wage and hour laws. Uh, he's successfully defended wage and hour audits conducted by the U.S. and New York State Departments of Labor. And he regularly handles cases before courts and administrative agencies involving claims of discrimination, sexual harassment, and retaliation. Uh, Brian, welcome to today's conversation. Mike, thanks for having me. Uh, as always, a great topic. I think a lot to uh, unpack here today with the ADA. Yeah, I mean, and we, you know, we, I feel like we could say this about every webinar we do together, but uh, this could be, this could be a week-long conversation. Uh, so we're, we're going to try to hit the, the, the key points for employers uh, and, and what they need to know. And I think the first thing they need to know is what the heck is. I think uh, it sounds self-evident. What is the Americans with Disabilities Act? Hey, you can't discriminate against people with disabilities, but put some more color on this before we kind of dive deep into the actual requirements, the compliance requirements. Sure, sure. So, you know, by way of its history, uh, you know, the ADA was uh, signed into law back in uh, 1990 by uh, George H.W. Bush uh, and took effect uh, two years later in 1992. Uh, and, and really since, uh, you know, Title Seven, uh, you know, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, it's probably the most sweeping uh, non-discrimination uh, legislation we've had, uh, you know, at least on the uh, federal level. Um, so, you know, it, it's very important and, you know, we don't want to lose sight of why it's important. It's because, you know, here in the U.S. is where, well, it's all around the world. Uh, there are a lot of people with disabilities. Uh, I believe, uh, you know, I've seen statistics that some 22% of U.S. adults, uh, you know, have a disability. Um, and many of these people are in our workplaces. Uh, I, from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, you know, there are various fields where we see a lot more uh, disabled individuals like management, professional fields, sales and office, uh, service, you know, all have above, you know, 20% uh, of those people uh, may have disabilities. Uh, in addition, you know, the EEOC, we see, you know, over 20,000 charges uh, with the disability claim uh, last year uh, and hundreds of millions of dollars awarded in those claims. So it's important. Uh, and can really, you just speak to, so I, I know I'm maybe getting a little ahead of myself, but I, I, this, this is one of those things that I, I feel like, uh, you know, Mary Simmons and I had a conversation a few weeks back on sexual harassment, and I think you and I touched on this topic uh, on, a, on a previous webinar also, that no one intends to sexually harass an employee, right? Um, it's, the, it's, the, it's the misunderstood areas that get people in trouble. And so I, I, I would encourage people to think about this, and I'm going to ask you for some, some more edge case examples, if you could. It, it, if your if your employee uh, has a wheelchair or they're blind and use a cane and have a seeing eye dog, I mean th these these are the easy ones to deal with, right? Because it, it's it's obvious that they have some type of a disability. Then you would make accommodations for and not discriminate against them, right? Um, can you give me maybe give some examples of areas that aren't so obvious 
uh, you know, to your to your stat of 22% of Americans have some form of a disability. What are some of these less obvious disabilities that employers really need to be uh, aware of? Yeah, and, and that's a great point uh, because right, not not all uh, disabilities are obvious, and there's you know no magic words uh, that will trigger the uh, the you know reasonable accommodation interactive process. Uh, so, you know, some of those, for instance, uh, you know, mental uh, disabilities, and I, I think that's something that's being spoken, you know, about a lot more uh, these days, you know, mental health, uh, but, you know, mental health can trigger, you know, compliance requirements for employers. Uh, those are things like anxiety attacks, uh, PTSD, uh, you know, major depressive episodes. Uh, and the like that substantially limit uh, an individual's uh, major life activities. Uh, and so maybe they aren't necessarily disabled, they, they may be, or they might just be regarded as disabled uh, with respect to those mental uh, issues. And you know, one of the things I always preach is that you know, communication is key uh, in all aspects of compliance with the ADA. Uh, but that, you know, essentially, you know, when employers uh, notice behavior or uh, a concern about someone in here, right, we're talking about maybe, you know, uh, something that's a, a mental uh, health issue. Uh, you know, there should be a twofold conversation with, this, with, with an employee, right? Number one should be, you know, performance wise, right? Talk about their performance issues and, and where they're falling short, what the issues are. And then, you know, the, the magic words the employer can say, you know, what can I do to help you, right? It, it's not always coming forward with the, you know, the magic bullet, but starting that uh, conversation about what can be done to assist this individual and, uh, you know, creating that environment. That's often when, when you get, you know, this is what I need, you know, this type of accommodation. And, and then you get into that interactive process. Yeah. Okay. So we know that this is more than somebody in a wheelchair with a with a or a seeing eye dog. You have uh, mental health. You have anxiety. You have spectrum issues. Uh, there's color blindness. There's there's lots of things that aren't so obvious that we need to be uh, aware of. Maybe before we before we start going deeper into some of those examples, let, let's talk about the actual compliance requirements. And uh, again, the we hate to say it, but the, the answer increasingly over the years is it depends, right? Because these these issues get more and more complex and because they're more and more nuanced, right? So right. The, the hard fact of the matter is there's a couple hard things, right? Uh, 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 anybody more than 15 employees must comply with ADA. Do I have that right? Right. And that's really right. That's the employment part. That's Title One, which covers, you know, employment uh discrimination based on disability that's yes that's you know 15 and more you're covered by that and possibly your state or local law you know which has a lower threshold right right so uh we're going to be talking federal only for now so there there's the easy black and white part uh give us some of this it depends uh on your business what are the other what are the other depends <laughs> categories i guess uh for right or what you, if you must uh, comply and what you must comply with. Yeah, so, you know, Title Three of the ADA is probably where it depends, comes into play a bit more. And uh, Title Three is the part that covers public accommodations. Uh, and so, you know, obviously quite, you know, uh, uh, simply, you know, that section applies to places of public accommodations. Uh, so, you know, it will depend uh, what type of business you are, whether you're just a brick and mortar business, uh, maybe you have a website, but we'll get into all those issues uh, involving website accessibility a, a little bit later. Uh, but yes, you know, whether you're a place of public accommodation can subject a, a company to uh, all sorts of requirements, even outside of the employment context to people who might want to come to your business or, uh, you know, attempt to utilize your business's services. Um, so, you know, that that opens up a, a lot more uh, in terms of, you know, compliance obligations as well. So I, I do want to keep the majority of our conversation on employer focused uh, angle here, but just give the big buckets if you could, Brian, for uh, things like accessibility, 
for, for public access? Sure, sure. So, you know, accessibility, uh, you know, in terms of public accommodations, you know, we're not only talking about, like I said, websites, but uh, as you mentioned earlier, ramps, you know, physical aspects to the business that allow someone with a handicap, uh, you know, or a disability to, you know, access the goods and services that are provided to the public. So, uh, you know, this means, you know, that no matter how big or small your company is, you, you may have obligations here. Um, you know, one of, uh, you know, one of the areas I think of, and again, this is uh, something that I think comes up a lot more now than it had in the past, um, you know, allowing service animals, right? So under the ADA, uh, a place of public accommodation uh, has to, you know, may have to allow service animals. Um, now, nothing's quite, uh, you know, black and white as it is with the law here. Uh, you know, we have service animals on the other side. We have emotional support animals. Uh, that's one of the areas where the ADA treats, uh, treats you know, those, those animals in different ways that, uh, you know, service animals, you know, must be allowed uh, to accompany uh, an individual. Uh, you know, these might be individuals with PTSD or anxiety. You know, the, these animals alert or protect those people. You know, maybe it's someone who has a seizure. Uh, and, and they're trained, you know, on, on the other hand, there are emotional support animals, which the ADA doesn't recognize, um, as, you know, service animals. And, you know, even if you have a doctor's notes expressing the need for an emotional support dog or other animal, uh, you know, the ADA does not protect that and, and require that, you know, in going into a place of public accommodation, you know, the store allow you to take emotional support animals. So that, you know, that's one of those, uh, you know, intricacies of the ADA uh, when it comes to these public accommodations. So public accommodation, that's Title III, uh, that, that, that's a, certainly a big part of it. Um, so of Title One, Two, Three, and Four, three being public accommodations, that's a lot of, there's definitely employee impact, but it, uh, uh, a lot of just access to consumers and your customers. Uh, where do you want to go next? Because I think Title One is the biggest impact on employees. But it, 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 tell me if I'm wrong. But do you want to knock out what uh, Title Two and Four have also? Yeah, I mean, look, we can we can touch on uh, Title Two, Two and Four real quick. Is I I don't think we'll get into them so much today. T title Two yeah. of the ADA really uh, focuses on state and local governments uh, and public transportation. Uh, and so, you know, again, those are basically government agencies. So that, that's why we're not delving into that so much today. Uh, and Title IV of the ADA, uh, that's with regard to telecommunications. So these are things you would hear or be, you know, you, you, you would know what these are. For instance, uh, this requires telephone companies to provide um, you know, continued voice transmission, uh, you know, relay services, uh, for people with, you know, speech or hearing impairments, um, you know, closed captioning on public uh, television, you know, that's that would that would come under Title IV. Uh, yeah. But yeah, why, why don't we jump into, you know, Title yeah, so, I and, uh, just, you know, really frame, how this... Frame, and so just to frame it for everybody, Brian, so Title IV, working backwards, is about telecommunications. Title III is about uh, accessibility, and so there's employee and customer uh, access uh, accessibility requirements that you need to be aware of. Uh, Title II is more about uh, state government transportation. I think the meat of our conversation here is Title I, which is uh, employment, right? So let's get, go ahead and un, un, let's spend a few minutes parked here at, at Title I. What are the employment requirements for ADA? Absolutely. So like, like you said earlier, uh, this applies to any company with 15 or more employees. Uh, and, you know, what we're really talking about here when it comes to, you know, applicability of the ADA to companies is, you know, reasonable accommodations, right? That's really the biggest issue that, uh, that comes up with respect to, you know, employees with disabilities in the workplace, right? Obviously, we know, you know, we shouldn't intentionally discriminate against anyone with, uh, with disabilities. Uh, but the accommodation process is often, you know, where employers get tripped up, where we see a lot of uh, litigation, you know, 
typically if there's a discrimination uh, claim for a disability, you know, there's likely, uh, it's likely tied to an accommodation uh, or failure to accommodate claim as well. Uh, and so these are, you know, very factually specific. Uh, yeah, I'd be lying if I told you these don't on occasion trip me up. You know, even the uh, most experienced of, you know, HR individuals, you know, will, uh, you know, get confused by these. But, it, you know, it's a process that, that really you need to go through for each individual, uh, you know, disability. Um, so, Brian, when you say it, 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 even for an experienced person to get tripped up like yourself, are you talking about the accommodations themselves and when you need to provide them? Right, exactly. Uh, because, you know, there's no one size fit all, right? It's, it may be about when to offer an accommodation, you know, what may or may not be reasonable. Uh, and, you know, so there are many questions because, you know, uh, again, there, there's so many types of disabilities, so many types of conditions that may impact well, someone. And for each position, it might impact their work in a different way. Uh, so let's so. let's start at the front end of it, and let's so uh, in the communication of the disability or the request for accommodation. So, um, if an employee has some stress, anxiety disorder that is not visible, you obviously hired this person because you think they're capable of doing the job, and then they come to you, hey, can we have a talk? They talk about this. Um, you're not probing for any proprietary. Uh, 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 unnecessary discriminate potentially discriminatory information nothing hipaa there's, there's there's no violation there if the employee's coming to you but what if you as the employer suspect there's an issue can you so so i, I guess i want to carve this up in a few buckets on, on the identification and communication of the problem and i want to separate that from the accommodations that we provide so what is the what is the employer's boundaries and responsibilities when it comes to proactively reaching out to the employee to talk about disabilities or perceived disabilities? Right. right. So it, it's a great question. And I think I'm going to jump one step back and then I'll, I'll answer your question. But I, I think it all starts with, you know, having, you know, the appropriate policies and written policies and practices in place. Right. So, um, you know, it all starts with, making sure you know you your company has you know a consistent streamlined process for handling accommodation requests right there should yeah. be you know someone maybe even more than one person you know multiple people who you know accommodation requests you know, should be directed to and employees should know uh you know where where to go and you know be given an outline of what the process will look like i, I think you know that that's the number one thing because we want you know employees to be feel comfortable to come forward um, as opposed to the situation you 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 mentioned where maybe they're not coming forward and we need to uh, you know identify what we can do uh, and so, so, I, so the first line there is have an employee handbook have a written policy uh, that outlines for people that you include as part of your onboarding and training process that lays out hey. If you have uh, a disability or a, have a request for an accommodation, this is the process to follow. Am I saying that right? Exactly, exactly. And I think you know sometimes I see businesses get too uh, focused on that procedure and the formality of it. And you know, again, even though you have a procedure, you know, an employee who makes you know an off-the-cuff comment to their supervisor about you know, some reason they're unable to do the work, which, you know, relates to a disability, you know, that may be sufficient to trigger uh, the company's obligations as well. So uh, I know in almost every area we say, you know, manager training is important, but th this is one too, because, you know, employees might not just mention things to, you know, HR, it might be something said to a manager. Uh, and so, you know, that's why you know, a simple conversation on the floor with a laborer could be something that triggers the, the you know, interactive process. So, you know, again, Brian, you know, I, know, what is, yep. I know, I know, supervisors and employers, they're 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 scared to death to do something wrong. And I feel like sometimes in today's legit litigious society, uh, are afraid to have what may may have historically just been a good human conversation. Hey, I see you're struggling with such and such. At least it appears to me you're struggling with such and such. Is is there is everything okay? Is there anything we can do to 
to make things easier. I think people might be afraid of that conversation. Is that a is that a good conversation to have? Uh, is it risky litigiously? What what advice would you give to employers here? No, so I, I would say that's exactly the conversation we want to have. That you know, if you know, if you see an employee who's struggling with you know some aspect of their job, and you know whether or not you know you, you believe that there's a, a potential you know medical condition or disability that's you know impacting them, right? You, you want to have that conversation about right? What are you doing that, you know, what, what's the performance issue? That, let's identify that. And then, right, we don't need to ask about a disability, but say, you know, is there anything we can do to help you? You know, what, you know why, why are we having problems with this aspect of your job? And, you know, what can I do to, to help you? So sometimes a simple question like that, that then the employee will disclose it, you know, but it's just having that open-mindedness uh, you know, to to find out what the what the issue is for the employee. And I think my guidance for small business owners is this is how we should probably be thinking about all performance management conversations anyway, right? If 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 an employee is struggling, employee A is struggling compared to employee B in a in a certain area. If you think it's if you make the assumption it's because they're a bad person, they're lazy, they're whatever, and you're assigning a tent intent upon them without talking to them. Um, well, maybe they're lazy. Maybe that's why the reason they stink at that at that job. Um, but maybe there's something going on that you don't know in the adversarial relationship you just created with that employee by accusing him of being lazy. Uh, boy, you're setting yourself up here if there's actually a discriminate, a potentially discriminatory reason for that performance that's related to disability, like. Maybe colorblindness. Maybe you had no idea they were colorblind and they were having a hard time re reading labels. So they're has a hard time uh, stacking pallets in the warehouse for uh, for for a certain skew. And that's why employee A is struggling more than B. And if you create that adversarial relationship by accusing them of being lazy or not working hard, uh, when that's the real underlying reason, you're you're at risk unnecessarily. And B, you're not getting the job performance you want when all you had to do was say, hey. It looks like you're struggling here. Is there is everything okay? Let's talk about this. Is there anything we can do to help? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's all about the the communication. And like you said, I mean, this the interactive process starts, you know, really once you've uh, learned that an accommodation may be needed. Uh, but you know, even before that, right? I mean, you have employees. You know, talking to employees, engaging in a dialogue. You know. Uh, when someone's performing badly and whether or not there's a disability issue, you know, having that conversation will allow the company to figure out if, if there's a solution that will help the employee, you know, perform their job, uh, you know, satisfactorily and, you know, allow the company to retain, you know, what could be a productive employee. Um, yeah. You know, so, yeah, definitely it's, it's communication. And then, right, you know, in those circumstances where, you know, you know there's a disability, you know, and, and possibly a need for an accommodation, right? That that's when there, you know, the interactive dialogue requirement is is triggered, and you're not necessarily you don't have to wait for the employee uh, to come to you to request that accommodation. If you see a need for it, uh, and you're aware of of this type of uh, some type of condition, then proactively, you know, have that conversation, start the process. Um, you know, find out, you know, what's going on. This, this should be really a mutual conversation uh, when we're having, you know, a dialogue about, you know, what can be done to, to help an employee or accommodate, uh, you know, a certain uh, disability. Um, All right, so, Brian, so we, we kind of carved in the two buckets, right? So I think we covered, uh, I think we adequately covered the identification of the the concern of the disability, right? Whether uh, in whether it's the employee uh, bringing it to us, that's the easy one scenario, or it's something we identify. Uh, so we got some coaching and guidance around how to have that conversation. What about the actual accommodations themselves? First of all, can can you give us? It sounds like such a loosey goosey term. Can you give us a legal definition of what reasonable accommodation even means? Sure, sure. That's that's a great question. Uh, so a reasonable accommodation, you know, is going to be a modification or an adjustment uh, to either the work, you know, the workplace, the work environment uh, that will make it possible for an individual with a disability, you know, to perform that job. Uh, and so, 
a couple of key things to remember, you know, they have to be able to perform the, you know, essential functions of their job. Uh, and again, you know, essential functions are really defined by the employer. We'll look back to the, uh, the job description for that. Um, and, you know, something that's also not, uh, does not present an undue hardship to the company. Uh, you know, just a, a, you know, a general statement on undue hardship. Uh, it's difficult to prove that, and it's the employer's burden to prove that some requested accommodation presents an undue hardship. Um, you know, this could be something that the company claims is uh, extremely costly, um, or maybe, you know, because of the nature of the accommodation, it'll impact, you know, the operations uh, in a negative way. Uh, but, you know, it, it, with respect to an undue hardship, uh, you know, an employer should really uh, show that it conducted an analysis, uh, you know, but, if it's prepared to deny one on that basis. Brian, I suspect nobody listening to, listening today thinks that they're going to uh, create an undue hardship on their employee um, just in the way no one thinks that they're intentionally sexually harassing someone, even there, though th those behaviors may, in fact, cross the line. Um, so can you give some specific examples? And I think we should, I think we need to play around the fringe, right? So mm -hmm. it seems like an unreasonable request for an employee to ask for an accommodation that would cost a million dollars to implement, like redesigning the entire building uh that it's a it's a it's a 150 year old uh historic house uh that it's against code for me to even change uh in the employee asked me to spend a million dollars on uh, making something more accessible that would seem unreasonable to me i don't think these are the kinds of requests that we're talking about what i i think it's more like i have diabetes i have uh don't have great circulation in, in my feet i need to stand up and move around a little bit but i'm at a computer all day what kind of accommodation can you give me? Is, I think this is the, what we're talking about, right? Right, right. And yeah, uh, you know, a great example of, um, you know, what could be an undue hardship for certain companies would be, you know, uh, a leave of absence, right? A lengthy leave of absence. Uh, you know, again, you know, a leave of absence can be a reasonable accommodation. Uh, but maybe you know indefinite leave where we don't know when the employee is coming back and therefore it prohibits the company from planning and you know setting up its operations as it you know as it would uh, you know that that under the ADA may very well be you know an undue uh, you know burden on the company so you know an undue hardship so you know, it's a very fact intensive uh, you know inquiry uh, but you know as an employer, you really want to document it. So, you know, if, if I have a position where there are, you know, 10 people in this position and one of them wants a, needs a uh, long leave of absence for disability, you know, that might be reasonable because I have nine other uh, individuals who can collectively, you know, uh, you know, fill in the gap there. But, you know, if I have a, you know, one-off employer, you know, maybe it's, you know, there are only two of these high-level individuals uh, and it's a it's a long term leave of absence. You know that could present uh, an undue hardship to the company. So it's you know the same accommodation for two different employees. Uh, you know in, in different positions. You know could be you know uh, reasonable for one, but not for another. Right. Right. And uh, yeah, and a lot of it's about you know documenting that. Um, right. For an employer, you know the you know. One of the key things is, you know, documenting the interactive process because, you know, the employee might ask for an accommodation that, you know, you feel the company feels is, you know, uh, presents a hardship or maybe the company believes there's, you know, a simpler solution. And so that's why it's part of a dialogue and you want to document, you know, what the employee asked for, what the response was and, you know, what the company might propose. You know, all, sometimes these are done via email. Easy enough. That's documented. Uh, but, you know, the, this process of discussing uh, accommodations, if done verbally, uh, you know, follow up with a, a written email just confirming what was discussed. Uh, you know, this is something in, in litigation, I can tell you, uh, if I had clients who documented those conversations, it, it would save, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> litigation and costs, you know, down the road. 
You know, I'm wondering if you could give some more of the really no-brainer accommodation requests. I, I'll, I'll, I'll give one. I, I know at Assure, yeah, if it's the if it's the use case I shared earlier, somebody has diabetes, poor circulation of the feet, they need to, but they're on a computer all day. We don't even blink at, at uh, accommodating people with a stand-up desk, the kind of, you know, you can lift up and so you can work at a, your computer standing up and alternate sitting down. Uh, the, the few hundred dollars that those things, a good one, costs, um, absolute no-brainer for the removal of risk that you're not making a proper accommodation. The health benefits that come with it uh, uh, and for having a more healthy, engaged employee, and if you're self-insured, you know, healthy employees are their actual cost savings. Uh, and then three, just employee satisfaction. Oh, you know, my employer, they care about me, right? They, I, I told them I had this concern and, and they bought that for me. I think in the past, I have this black and white picture in my head with a sea of desks and uh, uh, various gender specific roles around a, a secretarial pool, all typing away where accommodations would have been laughed at. And that, that's not the world we live in today. We, sh we should be thinking about how do we accommodate our employees reasonably, cost effectively to engage them, uh, uh, adhere them to our corporate uh, employment brand, make them as productive as possible, all at the same time, has the benefit of reducing risk. Can, can you give some more examples, one or two of these really easy, no-brainer accommodations that we should be making? Right. Yeah. So I, I think you know, assistive devices, like you mentioned, you know, a, a chair, you know, a, a table that goes up and down so you can stand, or uh, you know, for someone who, uh, you know, doesn't, you know, has issues with hearing or speaking, you know, they're, you know, interpreters or, um, you know, I've had clients use, uh, you know, uh, their apps, right? Their apps that can be used to help people with hearing uh, issues. So, you know, th those are things that, that can be used. Um, you know, modified schedules, uh, you know, so very often, you know, that's something that can be a reasonable accommodation. Um, you know, we're we're not creating new positions, but you know, sometimes there's uh, you know a vacant position, an open position that someone could fill, uh, and that could be an accommodation instead of keeping them in their current role. Uh, and you know, just you know, anything that makes the uh, workplace you know more more readily accessible. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I think those are all you know good. Uh, you know examples but again it, it's very fact specific so um you know as an employer you know you can offer things that you know the employee might propose something that that might not be so realistic and you know that that's why it's an interactive process so you can figure out you know what will allow that employee to fulfill the functions of that job while being accommodated brian let me see if i can kind of put a cap on this on this topic and we'll, we'll move on to our, to our next subject so if you're an employer, over 15 employees, or you're going to be over 15 employees at some point in time, uh, you must comply. This is that's that's black and white. So uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act applies to you, and it's not just for your customers and access to your storefront or your bathrooms. This is uh, making sure you don't intentionally or unintentionally discriminate uh, uh, based on someone's disability. And so uh, it starts with communication. Communication is the most important thing you can do. So if the employee does not come to you with their concern saying, hey, they're probably, they might not use the word, I have a disability and here it is. That might be, hey, I struggle with such and such. Uh, and, and then it's an open dialogue. And it's our, uh, it's our legal responsibility as employers to make, quote unquote, reasonable accommodations for those things, whether it's a hearing disability, a sight disability, uh, some physical challenge that they have with strength or coordination or circulation of the bloodstream or anxiety or whatever whatever the case may be. And I think almost definitionally, these things are very nuanced. There are plenty of really black and white cases, but a lot of this stuff is nuanced. And because it's nuanced, the most important thing you can do as an employer is to over communicate and document these communications for the accommodations you're going to make with the employees. Am I summing that up correctly or do you think I'm missing any big components? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And I'll, I'll just add, you know, one point, which I think is often, you know, overlooked by employers is that, 
you know, the, the process doesn't end when you, you know, reasonably accommodate an employee. Uh, you know, after an accommodation is provided, you know, there should be subsequent follow-up to ensure that the accommodation is helping the employee, is working for the employee. And on the other hand, you should follow up with the supervisor or manager to make sure that, you know, that uh, accommodation is effective and that it's uh, allowing the employee to perform, you know, the functions of the job and not having a, uh, you know, a negative uh, result in terms of your operations. Uh, so I think, you know, that interactive process continues even after, you know, an accommodation is done, you know, granted or denied. Uh, because you want to make sure that that it remains effective, you know, for the employee. Right. Um, hey, one last thing I wanted to touch on, and I forgot in this part of our conversation, we talked about uh, identification of the issues and communication and accommodations for uh, the employees and which employers must comply. Um, but what about pre-employment? Because uh, the law says it's not just about intentionally discrimination, you can't even unintentionally discriminate, and that includes prospective employees. What what guidance, this this yeah. is a whole webinar in of itself, but what guidance would you give around, give employers for think, how to think about how to not, how to avoid unintentional uh, uh, discrimination okay. in the, in the application process? Yeah, so great point. And, and I think the application process, you know, we, we can divide it into maybe two categories, right? The, the pre-offer stage and the post-offer stage. So, uh, you know, employers are, you know, much more limited in what they can offer at that, you know, pre-offer stage when someone's just applying. Uh, you know, again, you know, th there's some basics here, right? That That should be somewhat obvious, but you know, don't ask questions about a, dis a disability, right? If, if someone walks in uh, and, and you see them in a leg brace or crutches, uh, you know, don't ask that, you know, you, you interview them, but don't ask, you don't need to ask them about that interview, uh, about that, that, sorry, that disability in, during the interview. Um, you know, you, you know, don't ask, you know, general questions about disabilities that are trying to get some information um, like, you know, whether do you have any disabilities that would prevent you from performing this job? Uh, you know, more so ask job related questions such as, you know, can you carry, you know, a 40 pound crate with or without an accommodation where they can answer that without disclosing, uh, you know, a disability. Um, you know, so again, you know, at the, you know, pre-job offer stage, we're really asking things that are uh, about the job, that are job related. Um, and so again, you know, that's why I think job descriptions and accurate and updated job descriptions are very important uh, because there, there might be some aspects of a job you, you want you want to ask about. Uh, but again, you know, should uh, you know a legal assistant, you know, should they be asked, you know, can you walk up and down stairs? Can you carry thirty pounds? You know, they might never be required to do that. So we want to make sure that our you know job uh, descriptions that we're interviewing for you know, are accurate in that, you know, when we're asking things about them, it is in fact, you know, job related. Um, and then look, when we're at the post offer, offer stage, when an offer of employment has been made, um, you know, that then there's a little more, right, then, you know, at that stage, even early on, right, if an employee mentions something that could trigger the, the accommodation discussion, you know, that's it. It might start before they've actually begun employment or you know, set foot in your building, right? If they've mentioned something, we need to start that uh, that that process. Um, you know, of course, there, there are a few. You know, I can give you a few interview questions that would you know be you know bad ones to ask, such as you know, yeah. um, you know how many how many uh, sick days did you take for your previous employer, or uh, you know, have you been injured on the job before, or you know, you're in good health. Uh, you know, those are things we want to stay away from. Again, we really just want to ask job-related issues uh, and, you know, not get at whether there's a disability or issue through seemingly, you know, uh, you know benign questions. So th that's really the idea of what to do and not to do at that, uh, that pre-hiring stage. You know what? It's uh, good compliance to the law requires 
good management practices, right? And so uh, if you if you have a candidate uh, with coming in with crutches, there's obviously something physical going on. You know, you can't say, hey, you got crutches. Uh, are you sure you're up to this job? You're instantly in, 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 in terrible position, right? Um, but it forces you to have planned out and written a good job description, understand the actual requirements of the job. So therefore a question like, this job requires the, the ability to lift and carry 40, uh, uh, up to 40 pounds above the waist for, uh, uh, for 100 feet at a time. Uh, is that something you're able to do, right? Am I thinking about it right, Brian? Yeah. That is, that is the, the prior is a horrible question. The latter is a perfectly reasonable question. Right, right, because you're getting towards what what the job is about, not about some characteristic of this person or condition of the, this person. Right. Exactly. In in the so the right approach is harder because it requires more planning. You're going to have to have job descriptions actually written. You're going to have to have handbooks actually written. Uh, they're going to be have to be more well thought out. But it saves you in the long run, and it re, and, and it results in a more productive workforce. So, okay, we covered pre-employment, we covered employment. Uh, let's move on to a topic that I, I think a lot of people just have no idea is even a legal responsibility, and, and that's the website. What what can you tell employers uh, about their legal obligation to have an ADA compliant website? Sure. So th there's a lot to unpack here. I'll just start out with. A blanket statement that if this is not something you've looked into, look into it because this is actually the where the, we're seeing the greatest amount of litigation right now in terms of the ADA. So, I mean, look, when, when the ADA was created in you know the early '90s, uh, you know, I think the internet existed, but nowhere near like uh, it does today. Uh, and so, you know, Title Three of you know the ADA doesn't really say anything. Uh, about you know the the internet and company websites and whether they're places of public accommodation, but you know what we can speak to is what the current legal landscape says. And there has been uh, Department of Justice guidance uh, just this year on uh, website accessibility, and you know we've seen a lot come down in terms of uh, litigation and what the courts say. Um, so obviously. What's the problem? Right, we have a lot of people in the U.S. who you know have hearing or visual impairments that affect their ability to use, communicate with websites, or otherwise you know use uh, the internet. Um, so you know what we're looking at here is you know typically the allegations in a website accessibility case are that a private company qualifies as a public a place of public accommodation and that the website has barriers that deny that that individual the right of equal access so these are being that filed thousands and thousands of these each year um, you know they are are really shooting up uh, in, in terms of uh, you know the, the level of litigation so Right now, there's actually you know a split in terms of the the federal courts on what they say about these. So there are a few circuit courts, uh, the first, fourth, and seventh circuits, uh, that have found that public web that websites can be a place of uh, public accommodation, uh, and therefore you know there are requirements. You need to remove barriers. We'll discuss what those may be, uh, and then there are some other uh, circuits. Uh, that have concluded they're not uh, actual uh, places of public accommodation, uh, that you know, public accommodation places must be a physical uh, place. Um, there's a, you know, I could tell you about the 11th Circuit down in Florida. I mean, they, that's, uh, that federal court has you know, kind of gone back and forth on this. It's almost like a, uh, um, you know, a legal soap opera, I'd say, but uh, you know they you know they have determined and then gone back as to whether you know websites need to be uh sub websites are subject to the ADA's uh requirements um but what I'll really focus on now you know that's the litigation you know there we don't know but you know that, that that's the best i can say that look at your your specific uh uh jurisdiction but the department of justice just a few months ago 
you know, issued some really important and potentially helpful guidance. It still leaves some questions open, uh, but you know, they issued guidance on how you know we should look at websites and uh, accommodations. So uh, basically, you know, the the DOJ addressed you know so, several areas that that websites have issues in, in you know accessibility. Uh, you know, poor color contrast, uh, use of colors to give info alone and not words, um, lack of captioning for deaf or hearing disabled individuals, um, inaccessible online forms, you know, uh, different ways to navigate instead of just a mouse. These are all things that could, you know, potentially, you know, prohibit certain people from using your company's website. Um, so you know the DOJ has given us uh, you know some things to consider. So uh, I'll go through some of you know I think what are the best practices uh, for website compliance because you know given the split in you know the courts and that you know their Congress hasn't acted to you know put through regulation. You know we're really looking at this DOJ guidance. Um, so you know my my first you know recommendation here would be you know whenever you're um, you know, building a new website or redesigning one, you know, accessibility should be part of the planning and the design, right? Yeah. So um, there, there's something called the uh, WCAG. Um, I, I'm, I'm blanking on what it actually stands for, but uh, it, it's a, there are, we, you know, there are, it basically talks about, you know, compliance for websites. So the first would be, you know, talk to your website designer, tell them you want it WCAG compliant. I, I think we're at WCAG 2.0. Um, and so there's certain things that means that it should be perceivable, it should be operable, understandable, and robust. Uh, again, I'm no you know website specialist, but you know, what does this generally mean, right? That your your website you know should be you know perceivable right it shouldn't be invisible to some part of someone's senses. Um, operable means that even if someone's disabled, they should be able to operate your website. Um, you know the the interface shouldn't require an interaction that someone who's deaf or you know blind you know can't do. Um, it should be understandable in that. You know, it should be simple enough that someone trying to use it should understand, um, you know, how to operate, you know, the, the user interface of the website. Um, yeah. and, and robust means, you know, as technologies advance, your these accessibility portions are advancing with it, right? That you just don't have this old, you know, 2000 website for people with, you know, accessibility issues while you've, you know, advanced the rest of your website. Uh, much farther. Uh, so, so those are some things to consider. But uh, one of the things I think, so a couple, couple of thoughts I have on this is, I think our guidance for employers would be increasingly your website. It, it, it's let's go back 20 years. Your website was probably some digital sales collateral, right? So maybe ADA interpretations had not advanced that far. Uh, and forgive me for taking a shot at your industry, Brian, maybe the ambulance chasers hadn't jumped on board finding ways to sue over non-ADA compliant websites. Um, uh, but I think it's safe to say early websites were ugly. They were text only, maybe a few basic images. Um, and it was sales collateral. It was marketing materials. Today, the website for a company is in fact your storefront and if your storefront has to be wheelchair accessible and in uh, wheelchair accessible bathrooms and uh be an ada compliant lobby to enter your place of business that's what your website is increasingly over time so i think employers need to be need to think about their websites as that it is the it is the store it is the lobby of your business right um and so things like well gosh What's wrong with a bunch of images that makes my website look beautiful? Well, I'm getting wonky here as a marketing guy, but if you have, if you're, if a person with a, 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 a vision disability has a plugin in their web browser that reads text 
and speaks text, so it's text to audio, um, they listen to your website. They don't read because they can't read. They can't see the text. But if all you have is images without alt text, it's called, describing what that image is, they can't interpret and consume your website. So this gets really complex, really, really, really fast. Yeah. But it, yeah. to me, the, the guidance here is for employers is, um, especially if you're a small employer, you're 15 and a half employees, right? You might not have the deep pockets to go build a 30 or 50,000 WCG compliant website. Um, but use some common sense and think about your website as a storefront that you must make ADA compliant just as you do a brick and mortar business. Yeah, and, absolutely. So important because, you know, and I, I may have even, I, I want to upplay this more because I don't think it, you know, these, there are plaintiffs firms and plaintiffs out there who are just going through websites. I don't know, maybe they're going through a phone book, I, you know, but they are just picking businesses going to the website, whether there's a true intention to use that company's services or not. Uh, and they are either actually trying to use it and then they're going to note the deficiencies in the website or there are testers. There are tester plaintiffs who are doing this for a living and yeah. they are filing, you know, dozens of lawsuits a week uh, or a month. And, you know, they're, you know, obtaining, you know, quick settlements, injunctive relief uh, as to all this stuff. And so, you know, this is not just, you know, people coming to your business who, you know, you will know, you may know if an, uh, an individual comes to your business and, uh, you know, encounters a physical barrier and, and raises that, right? That might be something you're aware of. This is, these are people you've never dealt with and they can go file a, a lawsuit because they've gone to your website. Uh, right. So you know, look for companies and businesses that either don't want to or don't have the resources. Again, that's understandable, but uh, you know, consider the latest litigation developments in your jurisdiction because there is very possibly you know exposure uh, you know given this very uh, active plaintiffs bar. Uh, so there might be you know it might be worthwhile to just consider making accessible some portions of the website, right? Maybe just the, the most heavily trafficked pages, the landing pages, uh, because again, there isn't guidance right now as to whether a company's whole website needs to be, uh, you know, accessible and compliant with the, the WCAG, you know, uh, standards. Uh, so, you know, companies, even if you're proactively, uh, you know, complying, you know, maybe you want to just first focus on those more heavily trafficked pages uh, and the parts that are tied towards, you know, your public accommodation uh, or your, you know, and selling of goods and, and then focus on those lesser used uh, pages after that. Um, you know, but no, no matter Brian, what steps. You, yep. Good. What, 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 what guidance do you give employers for, because increasingly the web, a website, I mean, I think we're talking here in the context of a public facing external website, but increasingly an intranet, AKA a website for employees is a substantial part of the job. So if you're an employee at Assure, I mean, you're in, you're in email and you're in Teams chat, but you're in SharePoint, which is a website. You're in the internet looking, getting forms and uh, how do I request uh, time off where right. what are our vacation policies it's all on the intranet it's, it's a website internal what, what guidance do you give employers for internal facing websites yeah very much these the same things that right consider a uh you know a deaf employee that you have are, are they going to be able to you know go in and take that training off your uh intranet or you know are they you know someone uh, you know, who has a, a vision you know, disability, are they going to be able to, you know, find, you know, what they need and fill out a form? So, yeah, I, these very same considerations uh, should be thought about for, you know, a company's, you know, internal website, because, again, you know, that those issues might very well come up, you know, under, you know, Title One, the employment portion, but it would be just as pertinent as, to, you know, what a reasonable accommodation is. And, Look, you know, if you have, you know, for instance, deaf employees uh, or, or, you know, you know, there are lots of things you need to do, you know, even, uh, you know, something that's, you know, announced in at a meeting, right? 
you need an interpreter there. So, you know, the, the same thing, you know, applies for what's going to be conveyed to employees, uh, you know, over, over an intranet, certainly. Um, yeah. Hey, Brian, we're, we're about at time. Let's, the last topic I wanted to hit here, and, and let's just spend two minutes on it if we could. Uh, we don't want to scare the heck out of everybody here, but we want everybody to understand what the real-life consequences can be. Uh, speak to, to fines for non-compliance. Maybe first, what is, who is the regulatory body that manages this stuff? Um, uh, and, and where do consequences happen? Is it, you know, like I know it's Department of Labor doing a wage and hour audit. That's not the, how this plays out. This, this commonly plays out in the courts as a form of a lawsuit. Right, right. So, you know, started, we were talking about public accommodations under Title III. So let's, let's start with that, that. Then we can get into the uh, employment. But so for public accommodations, so like we said, it could be private enforcement. There could be, uh, you know, a, a potential customer, a customer who files a, a lawsuit through their attorney and, you know, they can obtain, uh, you know, injunctive relief, such as, you know, a, 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 you know, an order that, you know, the company bring its website up to WCAG compliance standards, right? That might be something that's ordered by a court. Uh, they can obtain attorney's fees, which is where they leverage uh, their settlements in these cases, because if you litigate over a website compliance case, you know, it's gonna be costly, and then you're uh, building up attorney's fees on the other side that you may very well pay at the end of the case. Uh, and so, you know, those private, uh, you know, actions are, are a problem. But then, look, the, the Department of Justice, uh, they're the, the enforcement arm here, and the Civil Rights Division uh, can assess civil money damages uh, for ADA violations, uh, up to 75,000 for a first violation and 150,000 for subsequent violations. So, you know, these, this is not, you know, small change we're dealing with. Um, you know, in, in some instances, uh, attorney generals uh, can bring cases, uh, you know, in, in, you know, uh, in situations of, you know, public interest, um, you know, alleging pattern practice discrimination. So there are lots of ways you can, you know, get uh, get hit with one of these. And look, and then the simple, the simple area, right, the employment context, which is similar to other, you know, Title VII areas is, look, you know, there's regular damages for discriminating against an individual or failing to accommodate, uh, you know, front and back pay, uh, right? That, that, you know, gives them damages for, uh, for suffering actual economic damages if they, you know, lost their job, for example. Uh, emotional distress uh, and also, you know, punitive damages where, you know, the, the conduct was, you know, malicious and intentional. Now, under the ADA, these damages are capped uh, depending on the size of the employer with, you know, uh, you know, 15 to 100 employees, uh, you're capped at, you know, 50,000 in punitives and emotional distress, all the way up to, you know, companies with 500 plus employees are capped at 300,000. Uh, but again, beware, you know, that there may be, you know, other, other damages uh, as well. Um, so lots of reasons, lots of reasons to uh, come into compliance here. Brian, am I oversimplifying to say lots of money, uh, at least up to $50,000 fines for doing it wrong if uh, a regulatory body comes in, inspects, and says you're doing it wrong, but the real risk is the cost to defend a lawsuit, uh, whether it's frivolous or not, and if it's not frivolous, the actual payouts of lawsuits, that's, that's where it probably the most expense, potential expense and risk sits for employers. Is that, is that accurate? Exactly. And look, typically the cost of compliance or substantial compliance is much less that, than those litigation costs. Yeah, absolutely. Will. Always, always, always. All right, Brian, I, I, I think we're at, at time here. As always, um, this is just so complex. I, I, I feel like, you know, in past decades, the big laws uh, don't discriminate based on race, age, uh, uh, religion, gender. Uh, these are easy things, super black and white, easy to easy to follow. Increasingly, things like ADA is pretty nuanced in and of itself. Um, and then you enter in the state's versions of their own ADA uh, laws. This stuff, I, I, I think it was clear today, 
Brian does this for a living, and this is, it, it feels like to me, almost everything is an edge case. Uh, it, it's just really, really nuanced. And so I think uh, the most important thing you can do is have great policies and procedures in place, uh, handbooks, job descriptions. Um, most small employers can't do it. They don't have a SHRM certified person on staff. They can afford the 90 to $110,000 that would cost to hire that person. Um, and you don't have the expertise without it. So this is exactly what we do is we come uh, beyond providing payroll and HR and time to attend software uh, and tax filing services for employers. We provide these outsourced human resource services. We'll meet you where you're at, whether you just need a little bit of help or a lot of help uh, uh, with our HR support for managers, strategic HR support for managers or total HR for your entire uh, workforce where we truly become your outsourced HR uh, function. All of this at an absolute fraction of the cost of trying to hire in-house staff. So if you're interested, uh, please reach out to us after this webinar. We'd love to talk to you. Brian, is there? A, I'll give you a 20 seconds to talk about Jackson Lewis and how you guys help companies. Sure, sure, of course. And uh, so we're a nationwide employment defense firm. We we represent uh, and help companies in all parts of the uh, employment uh, relationship. And you know, certainly whether it's uh, guiding companies on legal issues with respect to uh, disability and accommodations or website compliance, or you know, lit unfortunately, you know, litigating a matter and defending it, uh, you know, we are we are there to help employers. All right, Brian, as always, enjoy our conversations and everyone else. If there's anything we can do to help grow your business by getting the most out of your human capital and staying compliant in the process, we'd love to talk. Until next week. Brian, thank you. We'll talk to you again sometime in the near future, I'm sure. And we'll talk to everybody else next week. Thanks a lot.